So Father, we come to you and we rejoice in the truth that we, when we were strangers, drifting from you, wandering from you, even in rebellion against you, hatred of you, that even when we had turned our backs and run the other way, you pursued us. You came after us. Father, we thank you that through the perfect life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, through his victory on the cross and over the grave, Father, that we can sing with confidence that the record of debt that stood against us has been canceled through the blood of Jesus. And Father, we stand in this place today to declare that victory, a victory that you have allowed us to receive freely through faith in what Jesus has done for us. And we praise his name for these things today. So Father, as we come now to your word, we ask that we would submit ourselves to its truth as the ultimate authority in our lives, in this church. Father, we ask, will you edify your church, glorify your name through the preaching of your word today. Lord, sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth and we submit ourselves to it now. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat and uh, as you find your seats this morning, I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bible. Matthew chapter five is where we'll be going together again today. Uh, if you're here today with us for the first time, this past summer, we began walking through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, and today we'll be picking up right where we left off last week, beginning in verse 21, and today we'll go down through verse 26. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26, that's where we'll spend our time together this morning. The uh, 2020 documentary, The Social Dilemma, was a brief investigation into the various ways that social media has negatively impacted and influenced our culture. And the documentary interviews many who were instrumental and really were architects in the development of the social media world, but now have serious regrets about the monster that they created. And one of those interviewed was Roger McNamara. He's an early investor in Facebook. And this short quote of his from the documentary stood out to me. He said, one of the problems with Facebook is that as a tool of persuasion, just hang on to that statement, as a tool of persuasion, it may be the greatest thing ever invented. And it's not just been the astronomical rise of Facebook. There's dozens of other social media platforms now from Twitter to Instagram to Snapchat to TikTok to YouTube. And all of these influences have started to wield very powerful influence in our world, informing the convictions and the beliefs and the opinions of, of all of us. And it can be from everything relationally, politically, or even spiritually. And not all of this has to be bad, but if the influences that we're allowing into our minds, particularly when it comes to our doctrinal and theological convictions, if they are not biblically grounded, if they are not theologically accurate, if they're not doctrinally sound, this can lead us into uh, some pretty negative places. And for me, this fall, October will mark for me 18 years since I have been serving the local church. I started my first internship as a high school senior at my home church, Mount Vernon Baptist in uh, Boone, North Carolina which means my time in ministry has, the trajectory has run almost completely parallel with the rise of social media. Now, there, there was social media before the onset of Facebook. Like, how many of us remember um, MySpace? Like, who had a MySpace page? Who still has a MySpace page? Let's be honest about it. 
Many of you, you'll remember uh, particularly a time when Facebook, you still had to have a .edu email address to be able to open an account. It was this sort of exclusive club for college students. And so I've just seen the influence that social media has had, particularly when it comes to our convictions and beliefs as followers of Christ. And here's this really subtle change that I have started to notice over the last several years in particular, but definitely across these 18 years, about the way these influences have started to form us and to shape us. You know, I remember if I was preaching or teaching 18 years ago, and if I said something that maybe somebody didn't totally agree with, typically our conversation was around what was said in Scripture. So somebody might hear something that sounded a little bit off and say, well, you know, I'm reading Romans 3 and it says this, or I'm reading John 7 and it says this, and I just don't see how it matches up with that. And so we would have a conversation 18 years ago primarily, and again, this is just my own experience, but primarily around what does the Word of God say about these things? But with the rise of social media and with the continued rise of the influence of digital media in general, here's the subtle change I've noticed in the conversation over the last several years. The conversation very seldom starts out anymore. If I had to put a number on it, I'd say nine times out of 10, it starts out this way now. The conversation really no longer starts out with, I was reading my Bible. The conversation now starts like this. I was watching this YouTube channel. I was listening to this podcaster. I follow this guy on Instagram. I follow this person on TikTok. I was reading this thing that this blogger said, and and so we don't so much have a conversation about what the Bible says as much as it's a conversation about what others have had to say about the Bible. And again, it's not that we shouldn't allow other influences into our lives. If they are biblically grounded, theologically sound, doctrinally sound, these can be incredible tools and resources for the building up of our faith. But if the voices we're not allowing into our lives are not uh, doctrinally sound, theologically sound, relationally pure, biblically grounded, they can lead us to some pretty devastating places. It's one thing to know what others have had to say about the Bible. It's a very different thing to know what the Bible actually says. In Matthew 5, 21, Jesus introduces a formula that's repeated that we'll see over the next several sections of the Sermon on the Mount. And the formula goes like this. You have heard that it was said speaking to something that was taught by the scribes, Pharisees, religious leaders of his day, you have heard that it was said, but then he follows it up with, but I say to you. This is a formula we'll see here in verses 21 through 26 and in the next several sections of the Sermon on the Mount. As we saw last week, during the time of Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees primarily just quoted other scribes and Pharisees. Jesus needed to quote no one else. He was his own authority. And the scribes and Pharisees, their main issue was that as they interpreted and applied the scripture, They would take their interpretations and applications of Scripture and treat them as if they were equally authoritative with the Word of God itself. So what Jesus came to do was to correct their misunderstandings of Scripture and to show them the ways that they had distorted its message. And just like those gathered on the mountainside that day, church, I think we too need the clarifying words of Jesus. We're a generation full of people who have heard that it was said. I mean, God help us. We know what the YouTubers have to say. We know what the social media influencers have to say. We know what the bloggers have to say. We know what the podcasters have to say. We know what the documentarians have to say. Do we know for ourselves what Jesus has actually said? We are a generation who have heard that it was said. And one of the main reasons why we're studying the Sermon on the Mount together for the rest of this year is because I believe we desperately once again need to hear the clarifying call of our Savior But I say to you, 
You have heard it was said, but I say to you. So Jesus deals first in verse 21 with a faulty misunderstanding of the sixth commandment, which said, you shall not murder. See, the scribes and Pharisees believed that they had fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law simply because they didn't physically kill other people. But what Jesus shows us in this passage is that murder isn't something that begins with the physical actions of our hands. Murder begins with the sinful anger that's in our hearts. And what we see in verses 21 through 26 is that Jesus will warn us of the dangers of sinful anger and he calls us to be agents of reconciliation when relationships are broken. Because the Pharisees failed to obey the law from their hearts, the Pharisees had missed the heart of the law. And church, we cannot miss this today. In the eyes of God, hateful hearts are just as guilty as murderous hands. But by God's grace and the help of his Holy Spirit, we can kill sinful anger before sinful anger kills us. So from Matthew 5, let's read again verse 21. This is the passage Alex read for us just a few moments ago. Here's Jesus. Here's the formula. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So Jesus shows us first from verse 21 that we have to be aware of false teaching that lowers the standards of God's word. Be aware of false teaching that lowers the standards of God's word. We saw last week, verses 17 through 20, Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to do what, church? To fulfill it. I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And now verses 21 through 48 are the application of what Jesus meant by that. So that's what we're going to see today in the next several weeks. What did Jesus mean that he did not come to abolish, but to fulfill? That's what the next several sections focus on. There's some who argue that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was contradicting and disagreeing with the Old Testament. But we saw last week that that's not the case. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets, literally to fill them up by bringing out their full intended meaning and bringing them to their full realization. So Jesus is not contradicting the scriptures in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is correcting incomplete and faulty interpretations and applications of the scripture. So just quick review. Last week, we saw back in verse 19 that Jesus had accused the scribes and the Pharisees of relaxing the law. And I really hope you held on to that quote from John Stott that I gave you, because we're going to keep coming back to that the next several weeks. Uh, John Stott reflected on that passage. The way they had relaxed the, wall, lo, the law was that they had decreased the law's demands and they had increased the law's permissions. So what we see in verses 21 through 26, this is an instance where the Pharisees had decreased the demand of the law. In their minds, they had fulfilled the requirement of the law because they, they kept all of the external requirements of the law, but Jesus now speaks to their hearts to show them that they had decreased its demand. So verse 21, you have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And at this point, they were right. Murder, it's right there in Exodus 20, you shall not murder. It's the sixth of 10 commandments under the Old Testament law. Uh, murder carried the death penalty and murder here is a good translation. The Hebrew word emphasizes premeditated murder. So again, we're not talking about accidental manslaughter. We're not uh, talking about the necessity of, of taking a life if necessary during a time of war. Uh, we're not talking about capital punishment. Jesus is talking about here the willful, intentional act of taking another innocent human being's life. The first murder in scripture is recorded in Genesis 4. Cain becomes jealous of his brother Abel because the Lord accepted Abel's sacrifice, but not Cain's. So what happens? They're out in the field working and, and his rage just was, was burning in his heart. Cain rose up against his brother Abel and he put him to death. 
And men and women have been killing each other ever since. In the United States alone last year, numbers related to murder skyrocketed to levels we hadn't seen in almost 25 years. Almost 20,000 recorded murders last year. That number skyrockets into the hundreds of thousands if you consider the number of innocent lives that were taken in the womb through abortion. Murder is a desecration of the image of God. And our reckless disregard for the sixth commandment is nothing other than a blatant assault and attack on God himself because all mankind has been made in his image, so all forms of murder are desecration of that image. And again, in the mind of the Pharisees, as long as they didn't commit the physical act of murder, it meant that they had met the righteous requirements of the law. But Jesus goes on to show them that not only had they not fulfilled the law, they hadn't even begun to scratch the surface of the requirement of the law. Because murder is not just an external action that we commit with our hands. Murder is an internal condition that begins with anger in our hearts. It does not matter how righteous or holy we look on the outside. If we ignore the heart righteousness that Jesus demands, we fall short of the standard that he requires. Verse 22, Jesus goes on to say, but I say to you, so again, that's the formula. You've heard it was said, but I say to you, we'll see that repeated a lot in the coming weeks. But I say to you that everyone, everyone say everyone. He says, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So second, Jesus shows us we should be aware of the severity of anger in our hearts. We need to understand the full depth, the full magnitude of the anger that's burning in our hearts. Go beyond our external actions, the things we're doing with our hands. Look internally at the condition of your heart. So there's Jesus finishing the formula. You have heard it was said, but I say to you. And here's where Jesus demonstrates what he meant when he said that he came to fill out the law, to reveal its intended meaning and purpose. What God requires of us is an internal righteousness that manifests in external righteousness in conformity in obedience to what God has commanded by his word. And that's a righteousness that we can't earn for ourselves. That's something that every single one of us have fallen short of and could never in our own strength and power measure up to, and it's the righteousness that Jesus calls and he himself is only capable of providing. Now, uh, just as a quick point of clarity before we move on here, I want us to make sure we're on the same page. The Bible does not condemn all forms of murder. There is righteous anger that actually brings honor and glory to God. We see an example of this from Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 21. He goes into the place of worship, and this was his indictment. He said, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer, and you have turned it into a den of thieves. Instead of it being a place of worship, it had become a place of business and trade for profit to the glory of man instead of the glory of God. So what does Jesus do? Like he just channels his inner Indiana Jones, right? Like like makes a whip out of cords and he starts driving people out and flipping over tables and, and he's releasing animals from their cages that were being sold. He purifies the temple. So we see even the righteous anger of Jesus himself because something that was holy and righteous in the eyes of God had been corrupted by man. We see this from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. There are things that we as followers of Jesus Christ should rightly be angry about. That there are unrighteous things that happen in our lives and in the world that should incite righteous anger within us because they incite the anger of a righteous God. Things that if we're not angry about, we need to ask ourselves, is my heart tethered to this righteous God? 
if I am not angry about the things that bring anger and grief to his heart? So we just look across the landscape of our world today. Listen, yes, it it is good to be angry about racial prejudice and injustice. It's good to be angry about political corruption. It is good to be angry about abortion. It is good, for heaven's sake, to be angry about the the mutilation of children's bodies under the politically correct banner of gender-affirming care. I mean, it's a level of human experimentation that's rivaled only by the likes of Nazi Germany, and it is good to be angry about these things. It's good to be angry about the sin that's in your heart, the ways that you've fallen short of God's glory. It's good to be angry about the sin that's within your home. It's good to be angry about sins within the church, abuse and scandal and corruption. It's good to be angry about these things. And yet in our anger, no matter how righteous we think it is, we are never justified when we fall into sin. Be angry, but do not sin. No matter how righteous we think our cause is, we are never justified in our sin against one another. James says it like this, James 1.19, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to what? Slow to anger. Why? For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Even in our most righteous anger, we are never justified in our sin. So let's understand the difference. There is a difference between a righteous anger that pleases God and an unrighteous anger that brings him great displeasure. So how do we know the difference between the two? Jesus gives us a few examples from verse 22. How can you know if you are sinfully angry? Jesus has shown us here already. You hide behind religious appearance. You're you're perfectly happy to justify the sin that's in your heart, and you do that by, by reading off the resume of all of your external actions. But church, our righteousness is, is not meant to be measured horizontally against one another. As long as you are always measuring your righteousness against others around you, you will always find someone who, in your own estimation, is less righteous than you are to justify what we perceive to be our own goodness. And so when somebody wants to challenge us and tell us we're not good people, like I'm a good person, like I've never killed anybody, like can we just go ahead and admit, like that's a really low bar, right? That's a really low bar. Like the overwhelming majority of people have never murdered someone else. Like that doesn't make us exceptional people. Never killed anybody, like great, and the vast majority of everybody else too. As long as we're always measuring our righteousness horizontally, looking at each other, you will always find someone who in your mind is worse than you. That's why we don't measure our righteousness horizontally against each other. We measure it vertically by looking at Christ. He's our source of righteousness. And every single one of us have fallen short of the standard he requires. Jesus says in verse 22 that anyone who is sinfully angry with their brother is just as liable to judgment as the one who commits murder. We don't measure our righteousness horizontally, we measure our righteousness vertically. So listen, as long as we are doing this horizontally, as long as we're looking at others and saying, hey, at least I'm not like them, all that is, church, is evidence against us that we're not striving to be like Christ. We don't get our righteousness by looking around at each other. We receive it by looking to Jesus. He is the standard that he requires, and he is the standard that all of us have missed. Another uh, sign that Jesus shows in the second part of verse 22 is that we'll effortlessly insult others. How can we know that we're sinfully angry? It's when we effortlessly assault others. 
uh, instead of insult your brother, verse 22, some of your Bibles might read, whoever says to his brother, Raka. We don't know exactly what that word meant, but it's generally believed that that word roughly translates as if we were saying to someone, you're stupid. That that's, that's the type of statement that it was. And Jesus says whoever insults his brother in this way will be liable to the council. Council uh, is another term for the Sanhedrin. This was the um, highest ruling body among the Jewish people during the time of Jesus. And it was the court where Jewish religious and civil cases were tried. And, and so Jesus says, listen, the sinfully angry person who, who calls their brother, who calls their neighbor stupid, in the eyes of God, that person is, is just as liable to judgment as the person who has actually carried out the act of murder. And my goodness, have we not seen this on full display even among professing followers of Christ over the last six years of political turmoil? Just this, this sense that we are somehow justified in insulting other people simply because we disagree with them. I saw a horrendous example of this just a few months ago. There's a, a large church, I think it was in Texas, of two, 3,000 people, and they were hosting an event at their church that was, uh, I think, more political rally than church event. But either way, this was a, a gathering of professing followers of Jesus Christ. And, and before this event started, they broke out into the Let's Go Brandon chant. And again, if you're, you're not aware, that, that is a, a euphemism for, uh, that's used to, to curse our sitting president and to wish evil upon him. And yet here, here's a, a professing group of, of Christians that regardless of what your politics are, like regardless of what you agree or disagree with, church, you and I are never justified in treating other people the way sinful, unbelieving people treat other people. No matter how righteous we think our cause is, we are never, ever justified in our sin. In the eyes of God, that was like two, 3,000 people all committing murder at once. Like the consequences here on earth won't be the same, but Jesus says that person is just as worthy of receiving judgment as the person who's actually committed the murder. A third way that Jesus shows us from this passage is that we'll commit character assassination. This is intense language that Jesus uses here. Here Jesus says, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Anybody else read that verse as a kid and think you were going to hell because you'd accidentally called someone a fool? I lived with that kind of turmoil growing up. Let's, let's look at what does Jesus actually mean here. The word fool comes from the Greek term moros, which is where we get our term for moron. But during the time of Jesus, it was much heavier, it was much weightier than the way that you and I would use that term today. Calling someone moron or calling someone fool, it, it was basically a way of, of saying to them or about them, you are the person of the lowest of the lowest character and you are deserving of nothing but hell. And that's the type of insult it was. That's the type of weight that it carried. And Jesus says here, if you're the type of person that wishes someone to hell, you yourself are liable to the hell of fire. It's the first time we see the word hell in the New Testament. It comes from the mouth of Jesus himself. The word he uses here is Gehenna. It referenced a location south of Jerusalem that became a very vivid symbol for divine judgment. Gehenna was a, a rancid place where trash and dead bodies and human waste were all brought to be burned. It was centuries prior, the wicked kings Ahaz and Manasseh actually carried out child sacrifices in Gehenna to the pagan god Molech. Gehenna was maggot and worm infested, trash and waste continually burned all hours of the day, so the flame never went out and the, the stench of burning human flesh always lingered. It was the closest thing to hell on earth that Jesus could point to, to help us have even a basic understanding of the divine judgment that was to come. 
You know, these aren't easy things to hear. I fear so many of us, you know, we worship this very whitewashed, watered down, kind of diet Jesus version that we actually find in the Bible. We quickly forget Jesus talked about this subject more than anybody else in Scripture, way more than anybody else in the New Testament. This warning is coming from the mouth of our Savior himself. Jesus taught that it was a place of eternal conscious torment. Like Gehenna, Jesus taught that, play, that hell was a place where the fire is not quenched and the worm never dies. And this is the future that awaits all who reject Jesus Christ. Friends, if we truly understood the nature of the judgment that was coming, we would never wish anyone to hell. We would never wish anyone to hell. Because the reality is, according to Jesus, hell is what all of us deserved. You know, we've never committed a physical act of murder. We have harbored anger and hatred and bitterness, things in our heart that in the eyes of God make us just as sinful as the person who has actually carried out the act. You know, even if you've never physically committed murder, you and I, we've hated someone. We've slandered someone's name. We've gossiped against them. We've insulted them to their face. We've harbored resentments. We've held on to grudges. We, God help us. We, we see things people do online, and what do we do about it? We screenshot it so we can go gossip about it with our friends and just, just continue to digitally crucify them. Like th These are things that we do. You know, you've probably never killed someone with a gun, but there's a pretty good chance you've assassinated their character with your gossip. And Jesus says this makes all of us just as worthy of judgment. As the person who actually takes an innocent life, we've all fallen short, we've all deserved hell, and yet this is the good news in the midst of all of that. Even as we feel that the crushing weight of this reality, that every single one of us have fallen short, that every single one of us are deserving of judgment, that not a single one of us could ever hope to do any amount of good to stand righteous before Jesus on our own. All of us have failed to meet the righteous requirements of the law, but the good news of the gospel is that there is one person who met every righteous requirement of the law. There is one who did what we could never hope to do for ourselves. Can you just imagine this for a second, that Jesus never held a grudge against someone? Like, like how difficult that is to even imagine for us, that he never harbored these resentments, that he never held on to grudges, that he never gossiped about anybody, never slandered anybody, never hated anyone in his own heart. Even people who hated them in return, what was his response? He gave his life for them. That's the hope of the gospel. Jesus has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And when we truly come to understand this, church, our interactions with people start to look different. When we realize there's this God who has done this for me, how does not that not change the way that we interact with others? How does that not start to shape our relationships? When we're truly in Christ, we're no longer comfortable with fractured relationships among brothers and sisters. Jesus shows us this in verses 23 through 24. He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, listen to the urgency of this. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, what does Jesus say? Leave your gift there before the altar and go. This is the priority according to Jesus. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. So third, Jesus shows us with urgency, we should be reconciled to fellow believers before you come to God and worship. This is the priority. If, if there's a relationship with a brother and sister in Christ that's been fractured with urgency, the priority should be before we gather together for worship and sing songs and give offerings and open up our Bibles and come to the table for communion, there's a greater matter of urgency and it's being reconciled to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. 
under the Old Testament sacrificial system, when people brought an offering, what they would do is they would bring it to the base of the altar and then they would hand it over to the priest, which uh, acknowledged that they were giving a sacrifice to atone for their sins, that they, uh, by placing their hand on the animal and passing it on to the priest who would make the sacrifice, they were indicating, uh, this is to cover my sins. And so this was a big deal, right? Like, like this, is, this is about reconciliation, this is about restoration, this is about atonement for sins. And Jesus says there's something in the moment if you're coming to give the sacrifice that's more urgent than actually giving it. And it's being reconciled to someone with whom you're divided. With urgency, he says, no, 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 no. He says, don't you give that sacrifice. He says, you leave it at the altar. First, go re- be reconciled to your brother or your sister and then come back and make your sacrifice. This is how seriously Jesus says we should take our efforts in reconciliation. What Jesus shows us here is it is the height of hypocrisy for us to come to God asking for forgiveness for our sins if we're not willing to go to others and ask for forgiveness in the ways we've sinned against them. So Jesus says, leave your gift at the altar. Leave your gift at the altar. Run. Be reconciled to your brother. If you've sinned against someone, if you've you've caused relational strife and harm, you know they're holding something against you, you go to them. Be reconciled to your brother before you come to God and gather for worship. So before we gather together for worship, before any acts of worship, we should be asking ourselves a couple of questions. Introspectively, am I harboring sinful anger against others? Or are others angry at me for ways that I've sinned against them? We should examine ourselves. If you're responsible for doing something that's caused disunity or disharmony, uh, even if it was unintentional, but it's caused a relational rift, Jesus says you are responsible for mending that fence. Again, we looked uh, several weeks ago, Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers. And we saw through that message that there are points in times, and scripture affords this, there are points in time where, where reconciliation is not possible. That it's just not going to be able to happen. It's not going to take place. We saw Paul's words from Romans 12. If possible, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with others. So we should continually be asking ourselves, have I done as much as it depends on me to live at peace with everyone else? And if we haven't, Jesus shows us here, we should go with urgency to try and mend that fence. And this relational reconciliation should take precedence above other religious activities. One of the very best ways this has ever been modeled for me uh, happened in that very first internship that I told you about just a few moments ago. Um, So I was several months into my first internship when I had, uh, I experienced my first church conflict as a member of the staff. Um, We had announced there was this Bible study curriculum that we were going to work through on Sunday nights with a group of of middle schoolers that I was going to be leading. And um, there was a member of the congregation who wasn't uh, particularly a fan of the person who had authored this study and had some disagreements with him on some other things. And so he started to email me to to express some of his disagreements. And and he and I started to go back and forth. This started to escalate. Side note here, like email is a terrible way to handle conflict, if you haven't figured that out already. Um, So anyway, this, this just started to escalate and he gets to the place where he finally just contacts our associate pastor uh, requesting a meeting in person with, with all of us there. And so, you know, um, I, I show up to this meeting, honestly, I'm frustrated because 
I'm sitting here going, this guy's not a leader in the student ministry. He's not teaching it. He doesn't even have kids in the student ministry. I don't understand what the big deal is. But he's coming at it from an angle of this was kind of a pet subject for him that I was going to be teaching. And based on some things this author had said about some other things, he, he just wasn't sure how it was going to go. And so we came in. I think I was frustrated. And, and he was you know, pretty, pretty anxious about how things were going to go. And, and so Bud Russell was the associate pastor of our church. Bud's been there for, for years. Uh, but this is, he's still there today, almost 20 years later. I'll never forget how he let out this meeting because it became textbook for me for how these things should be handled. He said, now, gentlemen, let's remember a couple things. He said, I I know that we've got some tensions we need to talk through today, but we need to remember that we are brothers in Christ and we need to work with urgency to pursue peace and reconciliation because this is a Wednesday night. He said, here in a few hours, this building's gonna be full of people coming to worship, coming to pray. He said, we are leaders in this church and we are responsible for helping make sure we maintain the unity of this body. So whatever we do here, let's make sure we're working towards reconciliation so we can go to worship with pure hearts and pure minds. Just textbook for, for how these conversations should be handled. And, and by God's grace, that's what happened. I shared the things I needed to share. He shared the things he needed to share. We asked some clarifying questions. We prayed together. And then we went from that place and we served the Lord together that evening. Because Jesus calls us to do these things with urgency. He calls us to, to move quickly whenever there's fractured relationships within the body. I love this from Don Carson. He says, it just, he, he heightens the urgency of this. He says, forget the worship service. Forget the worship service and be reconciled to your brother and only then worship God. Listen to this. Men love to substitute ceremony for integrity, purity, and love. Don't we do that? Like like we, we love to just substitute checking the boxes, going through the motions outside of actually doing the heart work relationally with one another. He says men love to substitute ceremony for integrity, purity, and love, but Jesus will have none of it. Church, we make an unholy sacrifice before our God when we cut a check to the church but remain cut off from one another relationally. That there's something more urgent today than you singing your next song or coming to the table again for the Lord's Supper, and it's being reconciled to anyone with whom there's fracturing in the body. So some of us, I just wonder today, before you come to the table for communion, before you sing another song, before you, you take one more day in your Bible reading plan, is there anyone in your life who's angry against you because of ways you have sinned against them? Is, is there anyone that you need to go ask an apology for, for something that you have done, uh, maybe that they're even unaware of? Would we have the integrity to reveal that to them and confess ways that we've harbored sinful anger against them? Now, quick side note here before we move on, because um, I, I know how my sinful little heart works sometimes. I like to lawyer my way out of obedience in my brain. Anybody else do this? Like, I, I, I like to find the loopholes. And, and so the, I'm just going to say this because this is how my brain works, and I'm, I'm assuming somebody else in here has already done it. Somebody in here, you're like, well, that means I just don't have to come to church anymore because I've not yet been reconciled with this person. So I'm going to justify not gathering for worship by not being reconciled. And I promise you, your course of action here is not to try to defeat sin with more sin, okay? The course of action for followers of Christ is continue in worship, but what should be the priority even before we do that is running with urgency to be reconciled with others. And so it's not an either or here. We're called to do both. We're called to gather, and yet we're also called to prioritize above that gathering, being reconciled with one another in true unity. I just have to believe that there are a few things that grieve the heart of God more than a church that looks spiritually united in appearance, but is relationally divided in substance. 
And as relational strife goes unaddressed, we're not only united, not truly united as a body of believers. So we, we move to make peace with others quickly. We reconcile broken relationships and we do it with urgency out of obedience to Christ. Here's how Jesus closes this passage, verses 25 and 26. So we hear urgency again here. He says, come to terms quickly. Everybody say quickly. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So Jesus shows us forth this morning. We should be quick to make peace before the opportunity is lost. We move with urgency. Now in the two verses prior, Jesus gave us an example from the religious world, bringing the sacrifice to the altar, the urgency of this. We should leave it there, go be reconciled. And now Jesus follows that up with an example from the secular world. During the time of Christ, as at many other points in history, people who couldn't pay their debts were thrown into debtor's prison literally until they paid the last cent. This word, as we see translated penny, it represented 1 64th of a day's wage. And, and so this is Jesus saying, hey, th- this is the consequence of, of our debts when, when they're unpaid. He said, until you have paid that last 1 64th, until you've paid that very last penny, then we're gonna carry out the full measure of the sentence. So the illustration here is pretty simple. If you owe something to someone, you need to pay what you owe. And, and if we don't pay what we owe, we'll suffer the, the consequences of this. Now, in the context of relationships, the debt oftentimes that we owe to someone is an apology. We've sinned against them or we're harboring sinful anger and resentment against them in our hearts. And, and as long as we hold on to that apology and refuse to give that to them, we're, we're refusing to pay our end of the debt. And, and, and so, so Jesus is, is speaking into this. He's showing us if we hold on to this, if we refuse to be reconciled with others, there are severe consequences that can happen relationally if we lo- allow these things to remain unaddressed. So those who owe debts had the opportunity to settle those debts out of court. That's what Jesus is saying. Hey, come to terms quickly with your accuser before you go to the court. Because once it got into the court system like ours, man, it's, it's hard to stop those legal wheels from turning once they start turning. He said, if you, you owe, and unless you guys can be reconciled and come to terms, he's taking you to the judge. The judge is going to pronounce your sentence. He's going to hand you over to the guard. You're going to go to prison, and you're not going to be able to get out until you pay the last cent. And, and again, in this context, because they, they couldn't work to get themselves uh, money, to make themselves money to get out of prison, they were totally at the mercy of somebody coming and doing this for them. And so Jesus shows us that there are devastating consequences that can happen relationally as long as we refuse to be reconciled with one another. So there's two questions that we should be asking ourselves as we examine our relationships. So there's a a relational and a spiritual component of this. We should ask ourselves, am I at peace with others? Do I need to be reconciled with with anyone else? Are you at peace with everyone? What what is the, the situation right now with anger in your hearts, all of us across this room? Husbands, wives, are, are you are you harboring hatred toward one another? You're holding on to grudges? You're harboring anger? Are you harboring resentment? Are you harboring bitterness against one another? That's a hindrance in our worship. But husbands, dads in the room, how's it going with our temper? How's your anger? How's the tone of your voice? How's the volume of your voice with your, with your wife and with your children? Ladies, how's this going in your relationships? Are you holding on to any grudges? Are, are you imagining people's faults maybe to be a little bit bigger than, than they are? 
Are you harboring anger? Are you harboring resentment? Students, how are you doing online? Are you participating in this, this shaming of other people who've been made in the image of God? participating in online bullying, participating in online gossip. Jesus shows us these things in his eyes are just as wicked as the things that would be done by a serial killer. It it all falls short of the righteousness that God requires and the righteousness that Christ demands. The longer we allow these sins to exist, the bigger the consequences become. Church, it, it is to our shame as believers How many relationships absolutely end up exploding simply because we weren't willing to have a slightly awkward 30-minute conversation with someone where we admit our faults? I mean, it is to our shame that the way we'll just, we'll just change friend groups or just change churches or just change communities, we'll just move on and just pretend that these things will never happen and we're then responsible for fostering division and disunity within the body of Christ. It's to our shame when these things happen. We should run with urgency to be reconciled to one another. Uh, powerful words here from Frederick Buechner. He, um, I believe it or not, he just passed away this past Monday, 96 years old. He was a novelist, a theologian, a Presbyterian preacher. Powerful words here. L- listen to the words of, of Buechner here. He says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. And here's why, he says, to lick your wounds to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Sinful anger will kill us from the inside out. As long as you hold on to sinful anger in your heart, friend, you are holding the key to your own prison. And Jesus calls us to move with urgency, to be reconciled with others, to to pay the debt that we owe of apologizing for ways that we have maybe sinned against others. And as long as we remain at odds with one another, our experience of worship is going to remain hindered. But listen, we, we can fool everybody else around us, God sees our hearts. Man, we can come in here and we can lift our hands all we want, lift our heads all we want, and cut big checks all we want. It is an unholy sacrifice in the eyes of God if we do all these things, but we hate our brothers and sisters in Christ. And he sees it all. He sees it all. And so if you're asking yourself this morning, well, well, man, when should I do this? (laughs) According to Jesus, the answer is now. Actually, according to Jesus, the answer was before you came in here this morning. It's, it's that type of urgency. It's that type of priority that we should make it in our lives. Before you offer another gift, before you sing another song, before you come to the table for communion one more time, before you check one more box in your Bible reading plan, who do you need to be reconciled to as a brother or sister in Christ? Jesus calls us to do this with urgency. But again, this doesn't just have a relational component. There's a spiritual component here in verses 21 through 26. So beyond asking, am I at peace with others? We should also ask ourselves, am I at peace with God? These two are inextricably linked, we've seen in this passage. To to be hostile towards our brothers and sisters is to be hostile towards God. Are are we at peace with God? Do we need to be reconciled to God for the ways we we sin against others, for the ways that we sin against him? I was, uh, this was probably 11, 12 years ago now, I had the opportunity to do ministry one night in a, uh, a maximum security prison. This is up in North Carolina. 
And so I heard the testimony that night of one of the inmates who was serving a life sentence and uh, had a, a, just a, a very genuine uh, jailhouse conversion, true repentance and coming to faith in Christ and just had this incredibly powerful testimony. And so he, he stands up there in the middle of, of the yard where we were hosting this event, all these inmates gathered in and listening and many of them were new, I learned that day as we came in. And, and so he shared his testimony. He'd already been in for about 20 years. And, and, and he said, here, here are my story. He said, I have broken all of the 10 commandments. And then he paused for a second and kind of leaned in to the crowd that was there and he said, all of them. He said, I'm, I'm facing the just consequences for our actions. He said, but for the very first time, when I got behind these bars, I heard of someone who could forgive me of my sins. He said, I, I grew up thinking, man, I could never measure up. I could never meet the requirements that religion demands. So I just figured I'm not even going to try. And I'm just going to double down on this world. I'm going to double down on my sin. I'm going to do everything that comes naturally to me. He said, you, you see where that's landed me? He said, but then I heard about a savior who could forgive me of everything that I've done. And his testimony that night was simple. He said, listen, he said, if he can forgive me, he can forgive anybody. And, and that's the story. And it's, you know, we, we might listen to that and think, well, man, I don't have a testimony quite like that. But according to Jesus, actually we do. The, the reality church is all of us have also broken all of the 10 commandments. Jesus shows us, that, yeah, while we might not have the same external consequences for our actions here on earth, when it comes to the day of judgment, we stand before God, our sentence would be just the same as the person who's actually committed the physical act of murder. We have all fallen short of this, but we have all failed in this regard. And, and so we, we have to be asking ourselves, am I at peace with God? What Jesus holds out here in the last couple of verses is he's showing us, look, there's an opportunity for you here. The day has not yet come that you are going to stand before the judge. You, you can still come to terms with the accuser who says that we have fallen short of God's glory. We can still come to terms. We can still settle this out of court. This is God's patience. You ask yourself, well, well how do I know that God's being patient with me? Are you alive today? Because according to Jesus, we, we have all, we're getting way more just by being here, way more than any of us deserve. He's giving you the opportunity, but he calls us to move with urgency. Don't, don't waste your time with this. The, the day is going to come. How many times you got to hear the gospel? The day is going to come. You and I receive our last, last chance, and then we're standing before the judge. And we've got to answer the question whether or not the debt has been paid. But the good news of the gospel is that the debt has been paid. The, the question is, will you freely call on Jesus in faith and believe that he has paid that debt on your behalf? This is how good our God is. If you look at Psalm 103, you ask the question, why should we be slow to anger? That's because that's who our God is. This is Psalm 103, verse 18. I think one of the most powerful pictures of God in all of scripture. The Lord is merciful and gracious and he's slow to what? Slow to anger. It's not that he doesn't get angry, but he's slow to get there. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. Oh, this is so good. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Is that good news for anybody else in this room? He does not deal with us according to our sins. He does not repay us according to our iniquities. Oh, for as high as the heavens are above the earth. So great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we 
are dust. Here's the reality of our sinful condition. Because of our sin, you and I owed a debt that we were totally incapable of repaying. And because we were imprisoned due to our debt, we were totally incapable of working to pay it off on our own. We were completely at the mercy of having someone else come and say, I'll cancel his record of debt. I will pay what he owes, what she owes, but is incapable of paying herself. And what Jesus shows us here is that there is time for, respo- for us to respond, but we should do it with urgency. Here's the good news for us today, is that even as God's anger burned against us because of our sin, his love burned for us through the giving of his son. When Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished. That was a legal term to tell us die that indicated the debt had been canceled and paid in full. He paid what we owed. And because our God has made it possible for us to be reconciled to him, you and I should do everything that we possibly can to be reconciled with one another. That's what it means for us to walk in the Jesus way. So you bow your heads with me as we close. Father, we thank you so much that you were patient with us. God, you had every right in your holy anger and your perfect judgment to wipe us off the face of this earth. You owe us nothing, and yet you gave us everything. So as we stare into the good news today, of what you've done for us. Will you free us of the anger and the bitterness and the hatred that we hold towards others? Will you help us to see the severity of it? And we thank you that through the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, that it is made possible for sin to be put to death in us so that we do not have to be put to death for our sin. We thank you for your son, Jesus who did for us what we could never do for ourselves, who lived the perfect life we couldn't live, who died the death that we deserved. And we ask now, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would put to death our sinful hearts and our sinful flesh, that you would lead us away from temptation, that we would walk in the perfect righteousness that has been granted to us through your son, Jesus Christ. We claim his righteousness and his alone today. We have none to give of ourselves. We rejoice and we praise you for what's given to us in Jesus. So as you have made it possible for us to be reconciled to you, help us to run with urgency today to be reconciled to others.